Hello, hello. Welcome to The V-Hive, your go-to podcast for all things women's intimate health. I'm your host, Hannah, here to discuss the many questions you've always had about your body but never wanted to ask. Whether it relates to sex, chronic pain, trauma, relationships, healing, hormones, spirituality, and so much more, we are normalizing taboos, breaking down the complexities of the female body, and providing you with the information you need to take your health into your own hands. Today, I am here with Dr. Peter Castillo. He is a dual board certified urogynecologist based in Los Gatos, California. He received his medical degree from New York Medical College after completing his undergraduate degree at Keene University. Dr. Castillo then served as chief resident in obstetrics and gynecology at St. Barnabas Medical Center in Livingston, New Jersey. He went on to complete a three-year fellowship in female pelvic medicine and reconstructive surgery at the Cleveland Clinic Foundation, as well as completed a preceptorship in intimate aesthetics under Oscar Aguirre, MD, at Aguirre Specialty Care in Denver, Colorado. Dr. Castillo is also a subject matter expert in a variety of female pelvic health issues and has spoken both nationally and internationally on a variety of these topics. Thank you so much for being here. I cannot wait to talk to you and learn more about what you do and share it with everyone listening today. Thank you so much, Hannah. I'm honored to be here. I want to know what initially drew you to this field because as we briefly spoke about before we started recording, I think it's so interesting how you do so many things regarding female and male intimate health. And um, I was saying that I've had different practitioners speak on the podcast who focus on certain specialties, but you definitely do a wider range of work, but all all in the same field, all very closely related, and at times I would assume necessary to address the multiple things that you specialize in. So how, how did you get started in this career and what drew you to this space? Yeah, this has been a, an amazing journey and the evolution of our practice and uh, and the care that I can deliver. Um, it started with the the discovery that as uh, as physicians in training and um, especially in, in the women's health um, specialties that we focus on the now and not the what's to come. And I found that there are so many missed opportunities for preparing patients for what comes next in life, whether it's what they can expect following um, um, uh, as they enter into womanhood or what happens after pregnancy or what happens after delivery or what happens after menopause and then what happens after that, mm-hmm. meaning aging. Um, and uh, we, because this, the way our, our healthcare system is is set up, we focus so much on the now and, and on putting out the immediate fire and we don't, doesn't leave us enough time to prepare patients or educate patients on what to come and um uh, and i saw that niche or that need early on i just didn't know how much of an opportunity there was to grow that aspect of of, uh, of women's health care um so my base training as an OBGYN um prepared me for so many of of the life events um that that women are um experience that lead to different symptoms and changes in their in their um, quality of life. And uh, as I've evolved through 
OBGYN and then followed up into female pelvic medicine, um, I discovered that there's just so much more to do. Mm-hmm. Um, in, uh, in, the, in the last um, 11 years uh, since, um, since I left fellowship, um, my patients have taught me so much more than I thought I could ever learn, um, uh, you know, being outside of training. Yeah. Um, listening to patients have allowed me to discover um, opportunities for improvement in, in healthcare, opportunities for improvement in their lifestyle and their quality of life, um, and lifestyle issues that just don't get addressed day to day. Yeah. So that's it. You know, the short answer for how, um, you know, we we discovered what we do. Mm-hmm. I'm so glad that you mentioned the importance of how much you learned from actually being in in practice and seeing patients and working with them because I think it's so interesting how you know obviously doctors are unbelievable but from what I have learned just throughout talking to so many people there's a lot that isn't taught in medical school as it relates to pelvic pain, sexual health issues. So I can only imagine that the stuff you learn from seeing your patients goes far beyond what you're actually taught in school. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Uh, absolutely. You know, um, urogynecology and female pelvic medicine is sounds like a very small niche as it's a subspecialty of a much larger area of all you know, OBGYN and women's health. Um, however, that small niche is expansive. Yeah. It's expansive because it addresses all of the quality of life concerns um, uh, that women experience, primarily because it's the after effects of life events and time. Um, and uh, with that comes the realm of you know just um, uh, anything from urinary or bowel dysfunction to um, pelvic pain, Bladder issues like recurrent urinary tract infections, interstitial cystitis, um, vulvar concerns, whether it's dermal, like uh, dermatologic concerns like lichen sclerosis, um, or just the effects of hormone loss and aging after menopause because of loss of uh, the the ability of the patient's uh, own tissues to regenerate and heal itself because of hormone decline. Um, And so the broad range of symptomatology that you can that you can see just branches and grows um, beyond just the basics mm-hmm. um, so that from that small niche we find that um, that it's not just um, a cause and effect there's uh, everything is is sort of like a puzzle there's lots of pieces to the puzzle and although there's you have a general image of what's happening if you don't address as many of those um, pieces, you don't get the full picture and you also yeah. don't get full resolution of the symptoms. Mm-hmm. So interesting. And so can you just quickly kind of run everyone listening through the main things that you specialize in at Swan Medical, which is your practice? Sure, sure. Um, well, our practice has evolved from from the original name is Women's Pelvic Health Institute. We've evolved into our current practice is Swan Medical Intimate Wellness. And intimate wellness doesn't imply only intimacy concerns. It's all those intimate concerns that patients um, pull tight to their chest, meaning they're not easy to discuss. They're not easy to um, to uh, bring up in a conversation with their, with their provider or to even their family. In fact, statistics show that 
that only 30% of patients ever mention any of this to uh, to a provider. And the vast majority ex- uh, wish and expect that the provider bring it up because they're embarrassed to do so. Um, so in very um, uh, understanding the, the, the nature of how many women live in silent in silence with a lot of these conditions whether it's bowel urinary pelvic organ prolapse pelvic pain or or intimacy concerns um they're all kind of um there's a taboo and it keeps them quiet and it keeps these underserved because there's not if you don't say if you don't ask they don't tell yeah is the problem so our practice really does involve the full gamut of the you know starting with the main concern that a patient has a mm-hmm. patient typically will come to us either by word of mouth, they research online, or from a referral um, with a particular concern. And that concern could be something as simple as, um, well, I don't, forgive me, not simple, but as as reduced down to, from the patient's perspective, as um, uh, painful sex. Right. They're in a long-term relationship, 15 years, 20 years, and they can no longer comfortably have intercourse. That is a very common patient that we see here. Um, and then we ask them about some more details about what that, uh, what is that, how does that affect them, and what is the what is the chief problem? And they say basically, um, I get either bladder infections every time, or it hurts every time, and it's just not fun anymore, and it's impacting my libido because they've associated pain and pleasure. Um, they don't know what to do about it. They go to various doctors, they go to the primary care doctors, and and they don't get a single answer. Everybody throws one piece of a puzzle at them because that's all they have mm-hmm. and they don't get anywhere. So basically we, we walk the patient through a very detailed history, get their background information, their history, their, their, their specific con, uh, chief complaint. But then we go a little bit further and we ask very specific questions that are oftentimes related to see where the connections are um, because there's always more than just one piece to that puzzle. And in fact, it's not uncommon that a patient at the end of our of our consultation, I will have five or six diagnoses for them as to what's contributing to their problem. But now knowing that, I'm no longer guessing. I'm no longer throwing darts at a board to see what sticks. It is truly guided towards identifying the root cause so I can address not only their current symptom, but prevent progression and other symptoms that usually typically follow. Mm-hmm. So after that, which our, our consultations are about an hour, and after a consultation, um, we do a physical exam. Um, it's it's somewhat focused on the area of concern. However, there's also the associated problems that oftentimes um, uh, uh, confound matters. So it's a very it's a detailed urogynecologic exam that requires um, you know. Uh, several measures and um, indices that we use in conjunction with the questionnaires that they filled out coming in. And now we have both. We have our our, our physical findings as well as our subjective um, uh, symptoms that the patient mentions. And I have a really good picture of what's going on. If there's any diagnostic evaluations that we need to do further, we're able to do that. We're a full-service practice um, from advanced diagnostics, um, like urodynamics to clarify urinary dysfunction, um, cystoscopy to identify um, you know reasons for bladder pain or or recurrent bladder infections or urinary symptoms that aren't clear um, uh, to fill out the whole picture. So we can do so much here in one place. Um, and again, you know, because we are um, we focus on the patient experience because these are intimate concerns. 
nobody wants to feel rushed during all of this. It is a very comfortable and respectful process. Mm -hmm. We take this very seriously for the patients because it's important for us that the patient feels comfortable that they can let their guard down and be heard here. Yeah, yeah, that's amazing. I want to go back for a second. As you said, some of the most common and kind of baseline problems that you see. So you mentioned painful sex, and that's something that I hear about often. And I've had various practitioners address that in in previous episodes. But another thing that you mentioned that seems to me just as if not more common are these recurrent UTIs that don't seem to go away, sometimes are diagnosed as IC, but might really not be IC. And it seems like I, I just I hear about it all the time. I've experienced many UTIs myself. And I'm curious to hear your take on this and, and why you think this is such a common problem amongst women. Sure, sure. Um, well, uh, let's just focusing on, on UTIs. Because yeah. UTIs are a huge, huge burden on, uh, for women. Um, uh, they're very disruptive to their activities and certainly um, is a, uh, a disincentive when they, they happen frequently after intercourse. Yeah. Um, so urinary tract infections, just starting from some basics, urinary tract infections in women are far more common than in men simply because of geography. Mm-hmm. Um, 80% of, uh, of UTIs arise from uh, the gastrointestinal tract bac- uh, bacterial flora that can live uh, near and around the anus. The anus and the vagina are only centimeters or away. So it's amazing that women aren't exposed even more than they are because right. of just by looking from a proximity perspective. However, there is an amazing defense mechanism that the, that the, that the body has created for women that creates a completely different environment in the vagina. The vagina is, a, um, is an, an environment that has a different pH, dramatically different pH, has complete, which in turn allows for very specific bacterial flora to live there. And they live in harmony, and they live there and only there. They can't live outside, mm-hmm. but the outside bacteria that come from the GI tract cannot live inside. Um, so that, that just in, in, as a, just an anatomic and uh, evolutionary um, trait is just fan, is amazing that that exists. That's so what prevents most UTIs from happening. Mm-hmm. There's other immune components that um, that also play a big role in that. That for the vast majority of women exists and they have. Um, but then changes in in either their their underlying immune ability um, from surface IgA, which is something that helps protect mucosal membranes, to the or changes to the environment in the vagina. Um, will then increase, increase risk for UTIs. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll get to environmental changes in a moment. Mm-hmm. So the, um, the bacterial flora in the vagina is heavily reliant on lactobacillus. And I think it's almost common knowledge. Many women may already know that. But lactobacillus is a, is a very unique bacteria that um, it requires sugars as a metabolism. So it eats um, what the cells that are rich in sugar. Um, so the vaginal skin that sheds has rich in sugars, uh, and the lactobacillus can gobble that up and create lactic acid as a byproduct, which makes the vagina acidic. Um, 
changes to the environment happen um, at different phases in a woman's life. Um, certain, you know, uh, an overgrowth of, a, of the wrong kind of bacteria, like a bacterial vaginosis or, or certain STDs where the pH changes, now that changes the game, changes the environment, changes what can survive, um, and it allows other opportunistic bacteria to exist. Patients that are um, menopausal, um, as patients lose estrogen support, which is a process um, you know, that averages on, you know, typically around 50, 51 is the average age of menopause, but it's not a day in the life of it, it's a process. So as estrogen reserves decline, the, the cells that are rich in glycogen or, or sugars don't get that sugar, which means that the lactobacillus don't survive. So in menopausal women, lactobacillus is deficient, and that's why the environment changes. Without lactobacillus or the estrogen that it, that allows the sugars to to be put into those cells, now opportunistic bacteria like the gas like the GI bacteria that cause UTIs now can colonize the opening of the vagina or even the vagina itself, and of course the bladder and the urethra. So there's two points in a woman's life in women's life where UTIs are most common. One is uh, new relationships or honeymoon cystitis, we call it. Um, you know, increased frequency and, of course, irritation to the urethra, creating little micro tears and bacteria that love to take advantage of that. Um, and then menopause. Um, those are the most common points in a woman's life, but the most common is after menopause. And then that's where it's more problematic as well, because more from a, from a health standpoint. Other times where bladder infections are common is in patients that have um, that are on prolonged progesterone-only contraception. Progesterone-only contraception is very is is preferred, per, for example, in someone who is still breastfeeding. We don't want to give them an estrogen type of estrogen-based type of uh, oral contraceptive, for example. So you would have like either Depo um, Provera, which is um, in progesterone-only injection, or like an oral progesterone-only contraception. And the problem with that is that it creates a relative hypoestrogenic state in the vagina. So very similar to a menopausal patient. So someone who's on something like that for many, for many, many years, sometimes it does have an increased risk for developing vaginal atrophy and changes in the environment leading to UTIs. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting. So what I wanted to, you know, I, what I'm wondering, I guess, is do you believe that whether it's stress or genetics or, um, you know, so, so many of these other kind of external factors, do you, have you seen or do you believe that any of, any of those things can also have an impact? Um, they can. Stress can be, can be um, uh, uh, a cause for a variety of disruptions in our normal homeostasis okay. and our immune support. Uh, but there's also there are genetic variants. Some patients have um, have a deficiency in their IgA, which is uh, that mucosal protective and the, um, uh, uh, part of their immune system. That if there's a genetic um, deficiency in that, they are certainly much more prone to it. That's and then there's and I'm sorry. No, that's just so interesting. And I want to know, like, is there anything that you can do that someone could do if they have that, and how could they find that out? Because I've never heard that before. Yeah, um, and, and that's a very good question. It's usually one that is never worked up. It is something that those are the patients who tend to have, um, you know, illnesses their whole life for, mm -hmm. um, you know, common colds or um, just constantly getting exposed to the same bacteria or, or viruses that the rest of us are, and they're always getting sick. 
Um, so I don't, um, I don't know the process for identifying that, honestly. Mm-hmm. Um, it's uh, because the management ends up being similar. Right. It's reducing risk factors to, to cause, to that, that promote the UTI because there's not a whole lot you can do to, to, you know, correct that genetic variant, you know, but there's lots of, you know, supplements that are available these days that help acidify the urine that help create a, a, a barrier inside the bladder. Um, and there's, uh, and there's always, there seems to be a, a new one every week where, yeah. um, uh, that's something that carries, um, uh, you know, just there's, there's so many different things that you can put in a supplement that help, you know, bladder health, mm-hmm. but, you know, hygiene and, and certain, uh, strategies that are generally recommended and patients who frequently develop ETIs are wiping from front to back. It's a, sounds like a, um, a, a simple step, but. Um, as patients get older, they're not as able to reach from um, around from and wipe from front to back. You know, just mm-hmm. uh, mechanically, our, for arthritis purposes or, or fall risk, you know, for them, anything they can do is is, is fine. So, um, just wiping properly is a is a first step. Um, then, of course, um, for those who develop um, postcoital UTIs or those who develop a bladder infection every single time they have sex. And that's a real bother for patients because um, they start to avoid intercourse. Yeah. Why? It's just not worth it, it seems like. So for them, the variety of different strategies that we recommend is avoiding immediately after intercourse. One of the things I recommend for my patients is, uh, and it doesn't have to be a buzzkill, but um, washing both yeah. partners just beforehand would be part of the foreplay, just as a way of decreasing the bacterial count. A third thing that I always recommend because um, many UTIs are just like any bacterial infection um, occurs when there's trauma to the skin. And even in a young patient, trauma does occur at the opening of the vagina and the urethra during penetration. That anything that can be done to minimize that friction, that minimize that trauma and creating micro tears is another good way. Uh, Silicone-based lubricants is always a great recommendation for that. Plenty of foreplay to allow for sufficient lubrication. Mm -hmm. And of course, if there's deficiency in lubrications because of hormonal changes in menopause, then of course, there's addressing the underlying cause, like hormonal support. Right. That's so interesting and so helpful. I think that a lot of people listening are really curious about this topic. So I'm definitely glad that I have you here too provide this helpful information. And then, you know, you also mentioned some supplements, which, as you said, there are so many on the market, and it completely seems like there's a new one that that comes out every single day, every week. <laughs> are there any that you recommend, like your favorite brands or, or supplements um, that you recommend to your patients? Uh, sure. Uh, I think there's, and, and it does not, I don't have necessarily a, a brand that I would recommend. Mm-hmm. Um, however, um, uh, you know, going to your better, higher level um, uh, uh, stores that carry, um, you know, pure or high purity supplements is good. But things that contain D-manos is, uh, is very helpful for, for normalizing and maintaining a healthy bladder environment. Patients who have um, frequent urinary tract infections, addition of something like methanamine, which um, uh, I believe can be considered, can be uh, obtained over the counter, is a anti, um, it has a, it's a bacterial effect inside the bladder. 
Mm-hmm. And then, of course, there's lots of over-the-counter things for comfort, but I don't generally recommend masking symptoms yeah. um, before being evaluated. Yeah, you know the uh, the concept of uh, acidity for the urine also has been demonstrated even with. Uh, somebody who's taking antibiotics because it further acidifies the, the the urine. Something like cranberry pills or addition of, of cranberry in their in their diet. Those are helpful. The problem becomes, or the confusion becomes, in patients with IC mm-hmm. interstitial cystitis mm-hmm. is probably one of the most uh, uh, overdiagnosed um, yeah. conditions. And why is that? It's con- it's it's overdiagnosed, in my opinion. Because unless you do formal evaluation, the symptoms, and if they don't resolve with the general approach to a bladder infection, then the assumption is it must be IC. Right. But IC is not nearly as common as, um, as the other conditions that feel and sound the same. Mm-hmm. So just to kind of talk about interstitial cystitis, if that's okay. Yeah, please. Interstitial cystitis is a condition of the bladder, very specific a condition of the bladder, where the bladder lining becomes moth-eaten, if you will. There's various theories on what it's caused. You know, heavily believe that it's an autoimmune disorder where the lining that protects the inside of the muscular bag, which is the bladder, gets moth-eaten. And I use the, um, the analogy of our ozone. So our ozone protects us from harmful rays from space. If we have a damaged ozone, we have now harmful rays that will harm us. So the lining of the bladder, the glycosaminoglycan layer, it's a gag layer, is like a mucus lining that protects the bladder wall from the urine, from urine, which is extremely caustic. And if that gets moth-eaten, it causes pain, and it causes inflammation and histamine release and further pain, sort of like bee stings inside the bladder. And um, what does a patient feel? Urgency, frequency, pain with urination. So it seems like a UTI and cultures come back negative. So patients for years will go on getting treated for multiple bladder infections. And, um, and then until they get evaluated by a urologist or, or a female urologist or urogynecologist that understands that there's more to just bladder pain than UTIs and evaluates, do they actually diagnose IC? Problem is a lot of first line providers hear the same story and just say, you know what, you have IC, and now they have, they've been labeled with this diagnosis for the rest of their life yeah. without a formal diagnosis where their symptoms could have been easily addressed by something else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really important. And IC is not a bacterial problem. It is not an infectious problem. Um, so that's a very important distinction to have, that this pain, discomfort, urgency, frequency over bladder um, symptoms are devoid of, a, of an infection. There's proof that there's there's no evidence that there's no infectious process and then they're still there and there has to be a pain component in order for it to have the diagnosis of IC. The other confounding condition that women experience related to the bladder that sounds and feels the same is urgency, frequency, gotta go, gotta go to the bladder and uh, to the bathroom. That gotta go, gotta go kind of feeling, whether they leak urine on the way or don't, is called overactive bladder or, um, or, or uh, neurogenic bladder. And overactive bladder is not a bacteria, not an infection, and it's not IC. It is one of the most common conditions that happens to women. One third of women will develop overactive bladder in their lifetime, which is an enormous number. But overactive bladder is a neurologic signaling problem at the bladder, and the bladder doesn't know any better. It just senses signals and it thinks it must go, whether there's a teaspoon in there or a cup in there. 
and um, and patients feel like they have a UTI and they go to the doctor and they get a bladder, they get an antibiotic and then the problems don't go away. Mm. So there's a lot of confounding symptoms or, or conditions that sound and behave the same. That's why it's very important to find the right provider to clarify them if things aren't getting better within um, with with the usual treatments. I'm learning so much right now. So thank you for <laughs> sharing all of this. Neurogenic bladder. like So I know what that is, but I've never heard that term. And I'm curious. I mean, I've never even heard that diagnosis, which is, I, I feel like it's crazy, but I'm so interested in learning more. And I'm curious how you treat that because this makes it makes so much sense to me that is just a brain signaling issue and i think that that's what i've that's what i know because i like myself i've i have probably have that because i constantly feel like i have to pee and i know that there's not an infection and i know so many other people who have a similar similar problem and at times it's better at times it's worse but and i'm sure it's a long answer but you know can you briefly kind of give us a little snapshot as to how you would go about, I guess, reducing the signals that your brain is sending your bladder? Sure, sure. Well, let's, um, I'll try to sum it up in three ways. Um, one is there's the symptom of needing to go, like mm-hmm. the feeling, the urge to go, even though you just went a few minutes ago. So, and we're talking about in the absence of a bladder infection. So patients may feel the need to go very frequently for a variety of reasons. Either um, they have something called an overactive bladder or neurogenic bladder or sensory urgency where the bladder feels like they need to go even though there's nothing in there. Mm -hmm. Um, So the the overactive bladder patient is a very common scenario. But then there's also the learned behavior patient. Um, Patients who've had frequent UTIs or have had experienced incontinence in the past or, um, or for a variety of reasons. And oftentimes uh, there's there's also um, occupational hazard kind of situations like teachers, postal workers, healthcare providers. They go when they can, not when they want. They develop all kinds of crazy habits. So behavioral changes to the bladder sometimes are driven by the situation. Like right. um, patients who don't know when they need to go anymore because they've, for the last 10 years, they've been in a position where they drive a bus for 10 years. And they go to the bathroom in the beginning of the shift and they go to the bathroom when they get home at night and they've gone eight to 10 hours without going to the bathroom. Wow! So yeah. there's training. You can train your bladder to hold as much as you need, but you know, who's a better teacher, your bladder, your bladder will teach you to do exactly what it wants. So patients who, um, who do have, um, uh, fears of, of going to the bathroom, uh, or making it to the bathroom or never being in a situation where they can go, they start to develop habits of going more frequency, more, more frequent. So they will not only go when they need to go, they go just because they might need to go. Right. Um, they leave, they go to the bathroom before leaving the house, before they, as soon as they get to their office or before they, as soon as they get to the mall and they map bathrooms. And the problem with, with that is that your bladder is teaching you mm. because and, and, the, and the more frequent you go, the, the smaller your um, threshold gets, gets. So the ability to hold longer or hold or, or, or more volume gets harder and harder and harder. So eventually your bladder will teach you very well to go every 30 minutes and will eventually live in the bathroom. And it's really unfortunate to see that, but it's not impossible to correct because 
remember I mentioned we can train our bladders as well, assuming we don't have a neurologic condition we're talking about. Right. But it's still important to learn how to train our bladder to increase those thresholds over time. Mm -hmm. So the learned behavior patient and the patient of circumstance that learned that has this behavioral issue. But then there's the neurogenic bladder patient. Neurogenic bladder can either because of neurogenic decline, like with aging, like overactive bladder urge incontinence, where you you feel a sudden need to go. Um, For example, you're washing your hands, you pull your car in the driveway, you put your key in the door, and all of a sudden there's that wham. All of a sudden you got to go. It's as if you've been holding it forever and your bladder is deciding to go at that moment. And you can't, and then you make a mad dash for the bathroom and you don't make it. Mm. So those key stimulus um, lead to the bladder getting signaled to go. Um, now that is an urge incontinence or overactive bladder um, because the bladder doesn't know any different. The bladder is a simple-minded organ, right? Like I compare it to a light bulb. A light bulb is a very valuable invention and it does things when we want it. We turn it on and we turn it off. There's a light switch. The bladder is not much different. I mean, I'm thinking, I'm discussing this in a very simple term, of course. Yeah. Um, it's a very simple process. It goes when it's told to go. and But all day long, the light is off. The bladder sits turned off and it's allowed to store urine. It stores urine as to the capacity that it can and to the capacity that we can allow it to. And then we go when we want to go. And we decide to go, we go to the restroom, take off our clothes, sit down. And then the light switch goes on and then the bladder goes. That's what we rely on our whole life. We trust this very, very sensitive organ um, because it always works. Mm-hmm. But when the signaling isn't working, meaning that light switch, we'll call it, is faulty. And that light switch resides in the low back. Um, and it's a relay center from the brain to the bladder. And because it's faulty, signals get through. So stimulus like hearing water run or putting your key in the door suddenly turn the bladder on. And now, now, now that's a problem. So um, that kind of neurologic, uh, neurogenic bladder happens in a third of women, um, which is unfortunate that it's so common. But that's why there's commercials. We need medications for this. There's the, the bladder chasing the woman around on TV. It's really, um, it's such a common problem that patients will even joke about it because everybody has it. And the misconception is that it's uh, normal. It's not normal. It's just common. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so that kind of overactive bladder, um, there's all kinds of therapies for that. The other kind of neurogenic bladder is the spinal cord injury patient, the neurologic developmental um, uh, issue, you know, like the um, the spina bifida or the or the um, um, you know uh, neurologic deformations, deformities. Those start early, and those patients either have retention or an, or a bladder with zero control. And then, of course, um, and then there's just the neurogenic decline that happens because as we get older, neurologic input and, and function at the at this farthest end tends to wither, and we don't have the best control of things when we get older. So, okay, this is all incredibly fascinating. I wanted to ask you if, for the person who just has overactive bladder, would your, and obviously it definitely depends patient to patient, and it's hard to kind of just give like a blanket answer to this i presume but would you recommend that someone just holds like really has to you know in terms of like bladder retraining and really just 
doesn't go until they really absolutely have to go and like tries to hold their their bladder as long as they can and not give in to that urge um uh, not not in that way because you know doing that the opposite direction uh, yeah. can also be harmful in the long run like yeah. i mentioned like the postal worker the teacher <laughs> and so it's a process first during the consultation i try to identify what those risk factors are maybe this is a, a three venti a day person at starbucks or mm-hmm. you know, their favorite coffee shop right. maybe there's other com- you know components that are that are modifiable risk factors that are contributing to their symptoms you know, a lot of patients have followed the mantra of eight to 10 glasses a day of, of water mm-hmm. um, is a minimum in- intake, which there's not a lot of data out there that supports it. That's actually an actual accurate number. Right. And if for patients who have bladder problems, that's torture. I, I see it all the time. I have patients come in, their chief complaint, urgency, frequency, they go 20 times a day. And I ask them what their what their intake throughout the day is and they say i take about i drink about two gallons of water while i'm at work and um and i have a coffee in the morning and a venti at night and i have a glass of wine before going to bed and they're complaining about getting up all day every yeah. day all the time so of course those modifier risk factors are are easy to identify and we can reduce fluid intake we can minimize fluid intake after dinner um and that type of thing um, right. so there's those things that are easy and then if they're still having a, an urgency component to it, meaning they feel they can't make it to the bathroom, then we go through a series of things like we instruct them on um, on good bladder habits. You know, what's a what's a reasonable time to be able to hold it? And if their frequency is anything less than that, we go through time voiding exercises on how they can learn to hold their urine a little bit longer at very small increments and increasing that over a long period of time. And they can actually increase their thresholds, right. and then we teach them on on techniques on urge suppression, on how to pre- how to prevent the bladder from taking control. How do you actually turn your bladder off when it thinks it's time to go? And we are very successful at teaching that because we we, we really we use um, uh, we use a lot of al- uh, analogies in this practice that patients can relate to. Mm-hmm. You know, we, and if we can't explain it, so we'll find a way that they can relate to and they can understand exactly what they're supposed to do when they do it. Mm-hmm. Um, um, you know, I, we try to make it as interactive and as fun in this process because we want them to be engaged and, um, and motivated to follow the instructions. And we've had great success with them. Aside from behavioral changes and, and tips and tricks that we, that we go through with them and, um, and daily, uh, everybody goes home with homework. There's, then there's, you know, there's other therapies that, that extend beyond that, you know, first line, second line, third line therapies that, um, that we can go into further, mm-hmm. depending on the needs and what our findings are. Can you give an example of what one of those analogies would be? <laughs> All right. um, this is going to kind of sound kind of funny. Okay. Um, so one of the, pro- the, one of the biggest challenges that many women have is how do you do a Kegel exercise? Right. A Kegel exercise is a muscle, is the pelvic floor muscles contracting. And all the, the pelvic floor muscles are within the pelvis, so, that, so they don't move anything. So when you ask a patient to do a Kegel, they don't know if they're doing it correctly. I have had patients come in and say, I do those so well, I've been doing them my whole life. And you evaluate them, they're doing the complete opposite. Or um, because it, there's no feedback. So Kegels and Kegel exercises were always meant to um, uh, to be uh, to be done with uh, so Arnold Kegel was the developer of the, the Kegel exercise of pelvic floor contraction um, um, uh, you know, um, 
way of strengthening um, was always meant to be done with some sort of feedback mechanism. I mean, back in the day, they used these, these giant pressure pneumatic things, but nowadays they've got all kinds of cool devices. Um, but um, so, so when I assess patients for Kegels, and, and I'll explain to you why Kegels are so important afterwards. Um, Kegels are extremely important, especially for the urgent continence patient. They need to be able to contract their pelvic floor muscles on command. And when you do that, you can effectively shut off your bladder. You can stop the flow, not, not easily to stop the flow, but you can, su- you can suppress the urgency. So um, when I ask patients to, to contract their pelvic floor muscles, they, um, they, they do what they can. And I try to coach them with it. And when they're not getting it right, I said, okay, we're going to do the Brad Pitt test. And, um, and they look at me. I said, okay, this is a strange test. I didn't know who knew that Brad Pitt was involved in this field. Um, and I say, well, you know, so how do you know you're doing a Kegel exercise? So if you're in an elevator and, uh, and you have a lot of gas and Brad picks this on the elevator, what do you squeeze to prevent that from getting out? And everybody knows how to do that. Right. Oh. Everybody knows how to prevent gas. Um, and, uh, but when you give it a name like do your Kegels, it's nebulous. It doesn't have the same meaning. They don't know what that is. So they're expecting it to be something different. So they clench their buttocks, they tighten their legs. It's not the Suzanne Summers thigh master. It doesn't, that doesn't help in any way. It's purely the muscles that pull the pelvic floor forward, closes the vagina, closes the anus, and closes the urethra. And, um, but the only way to get somebody to understand how to do that is put them in a situation that they know how to do that. And that's, how would you hold gas? And you know, I have patients who say, oh, I can't hold those anymore. Like, well, if Brad Pitt were to walk in the elevator, would you be able to do that? <laughs> and then, and we do that and we, and they can, and it's amazing how if you put it in their terms, right. they can understand it. Oh my God. Um, so that's a, that's probably one of the funnier ones. That's, no, that's that great. That's so good. Thank you. Because no, it makes a lot of sense when you put it in a way that, that resonates with someone, like really resonates with them. It, it does go to show that they'll be able to do it <laughs> yeah yeah um and it's uh and this uh, of interest um speaking on um on other uh, how this helps in so many ways a few years ago we did a research project looking at the effectiveness of a biofeedback mechanism that is a bluetooth wireless biofeedback mechanism that connects to your phone to track outcomes improvement and symptoms compliance with patients to do it because how do you give get people to do their kegels and besides giving them a sheet of homework sheet of paper to do them i mean that's almost a worthless way to doing it Um, give them something that gives them feedback so we did this study uh, this is a few years ago we presented this at ishwish international society for the study of sexual wellness and women i believe it is (laughs) i always get it wrong Um, and in that study one of our outcome measures that we looked at was impact on sexual function and you know there's there's the there's the you know the general understanding that if you can do a, a good kegel then you can also tighten the vaginal canal right and it can have a, a an impact on the patient's perspective uh, uh, perception of intercourse and, and um, sensation um so in this study it was really interesting that the patients from um uh, on the arm that had the device that followed the regimen um, all of their sexual function indices um, improved 
significantly when they did regular Kegel exercises. And this was purely an exercise to prove that we can help with incontinence. What we ended up finding is that if you have patients really focus on pelvic floor, um, proper pelvic floor uh, strength and how to utilize it, you can actually have a, an, an impact in other areas like like sexual function and yeah. sexual um, response. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, but as one of the other pieces to the puzzle, the, um, the UTI issue in women, um, I alluded to this before, how um, hormonal status changes the, the vaginal environment completely. And I wanted to talk about talk on that because I think, and, and I'm not sure the demographic of your listeners, but a great deal of patients that are in that 45 to 65 age range, mm-hmm. those, the perimenopausal patient are experiencing these symptoms that are having a direct impact on their, on their intimacy mm-hmm. because of frequent UTIs and yeah. it has everything to do with hormonal status and how we address them. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, as, as, a, um, as an important root cause um, therapy, a lot of the conditions that we see here have direct in, uh, directly impacted by the aging process. And that aging process starts because we start to lose hormonal support. Yeah. And that hormonal support in women is both estrogen and testosterone. Mm-hmm. And estrogen's role in women is because women are dependent on estrogen for their reproductive cycle. Um, they have a greater dependency on on, uh, on estrogen throughout their body and they have receptors everywhere for estrogen. So they have a dependency on estrogen even if they have 10 times as much testosterone than, than estrogen. And when estrogen starts to decline, that's when symptoms start to have, whether it's withdrawal symptoms or, um, or urogenital symptoms. Urogenital symptoms re- that result from hormone decline, particularly estrogen, but also testosterone, is a condition called GSM, or genital urinary syndrome of menopause. GSM is, um, affects 50% of women and up to 70% of women that have any other urogynecologic uro- problem, which 50% of women have a urogynecologic problem. So you can, you can make the leap and say that 70% of women will have GSM related symptoms that are impacting their quality of life. Wow. And GSM is all encompassing, including frequent UTIs, vaginal dryness and burning, painful intercourse and bleeding. Those, those are the mainstays. Mm-hmm. And so that is the local effect just of the urogenital tract that impact women as a transition from premenopause and into menopause. And it is a progressive condition forever. That is probably the largest population that we serve here. Yeah. So that's why I found it. So when we see our patients that come in with any of these symptoms, some of our patients come to us because of word of mouth or they've done their research just for hormonal support because they, they heard so much about what we do and how we can really improve their lives. But I would say the vast majority find us because of other symptoms, the GSM related conditions. And then we discover, you know, what's wrong here is first we can do a lot at the local in the in the local uh, area just treating the the problem but let's look at the root cause and see if i can prevent this from progressing or even make things better mm-hmm. and that's where bioidentical hormone replacement therapy comes in is a very big important part for those patients especially my gsm patients yeah and there's definitely a significant amount of people that listen to the podcast who are in the menopausal whether it's pre or menopause or postmenopausal phase. So this is definitely a relevant thing to to mention. And 
is bioidentical hormone replacement therapy the main treatment? Uh, no, that is the that is an important ancillary treatment to treat the root cause. Mm-hmm. But the but the treatment for the condition itself, for whether it's recurrent UTIs, um, painful intercourse, inelasticity, or a non-compliance of the vaginal skin, so it can't even um, tolerate a a single digit, much less a speculum or much less uh, intercourse, um, is because of loss of local estrogen support in the vagina. So the first thing we do after an evaluation, if we identify urogenital atrophy, which are the physical findings of loss of hormone support in the vagina, first we start with the local estrogen. Local estrogen is is a local use only, does not have any significant systemic effects, so it's even safe for breast cancer patients to use. Um, and local ther- local estrogen is a first-line therapy. Anybody that has any symptoms like that should just be started on it. Um, it's safe to use, it's easy to do, and it has a very high success rate. Now, um, not all patients will respond to local estrogen because it really depends on the time, the duration of time that have gone since symptom onset. So the farther away patients get from um, from menopause, the the lower the returns, meaning the lower chance for, for greater, for great success. And in patients who no longer respond or have had such significant changes that local estrogen is just a drop in the ocean and doesn't barely does anything, not even as good as a lubricant. Then that's where we get into more advanced therapies like laser resurfacing, laser resurfacing and the common term that people use out there, like laser, you know, vaginal rejuvenation. They're not necessarily the same thing. Vaginal rejuvenation is a very nebulous term that I try not to use very often. It is on my website because patients look for that. But then I go into explanations, what does that mean? But laser resurfacing means taking older damaged tissue, creating a, um, a controlled thermal injury that induces change. And what happens to skin when you do this in a controlled manner? You take old skin and convert it to new skin because you don't grow old skin. You grow new skin with its all its normal original properties. Mm. And once you do that, guess what happens? Not only does it behave like premenopausal tissue, it responds like premenopausal tissue to hormone therapy. And you can give back the local local estrogen or even bioidentical hormones and it responds. Wow. How cool. Yeah. That is so cool. There's so much that we can do. Thank you for sharing all of this. I also want to ask you, this is something we, we talked about as well before we started recording, but a lot of a lot of the listeners of this podcast do have chronic pain. I want to ask you what advice you would give to that person who has some form of chronic pain and has been searching for answers for a while, nothing seems to be working, and feels just really defeated and hopeless and doesn't know what to do next. Yes, that's a that's a great topic. We see so many patients yeah. here that have um, chronic pelvic pain. And the chronic pelvic pain is such a broad umbrella term that you know, it's, it's almost meaningless because it doesn't tell you, it doesn't give you a diagnosis. It's not a diagnosis at all. It's just a catchphrase to say that pain down there and they don't know what it's due, and it's been there for a long time. But chronic pelvic pain can be from any of the organ systems that reside in the pelvis and and outside, meaning um, from myofascial pain um, to 
um, uh, you know, interstitial cystitis to um, inter, um, irritable bowel syndrome, you know, endometriosis, um, adenomyosis, and fibroids. So you can break it up into any of the organ systems, reproductive, gastrointestinal, or urinary, or musculoskeletal. So it's such a nebulous term that really what I recommend in patients that, um, first of all, you have to be yourself, your own self-advocate because this is an area that many people will very quickly dismiss because they don't know enough. Um, primary care doctors and GYNs, as, as all-knowing and as wonderful and necessary, this sometimes escapes them. And um, I think it's important that, um, that if you're not making a headway, uh, don't accept that there's nothing they can do. Always look for another le- next-level expert in your area because somebody's going to have the answer. Sometimes, unfortunately, regions of this country doesn't have specialists, but there's somebody that has at least a knowledge on one aspect of it. So you can start to rule things out. But ideally, finding somebody who has a um, uh, that um, that speaks to, on, or or has demonstrated in their background that they have a strong interest in pelvic pain and all the variety of, of potential con- uh, you know, um, contributors to that as a as a as a place to to go to mm-hmm. yeah. because they can at least narrow things down. That's the first thing we do when we have patients right. that come to us with with pelvic pain is we chip away those things that are not even don't even fit. And it's it starts with the intake, and then we rule things out because it's such a nebulous term. But the patients teach me every day. They I hear them. I hear what they're saying. I do, I focus on what they say, not just what I'm thinking. Mm-hmm. And we narrow it down to what the problem is. If it's something I'm good at, I will help them. If it's something that's outside of my realm, irritable bowel syndrome, um, I'll plug them in with um, with our colleagues in the com- in the community that we network together to create a you know a informal pelvic health network within our region. Yeah. You know the colorectal surgeon or the gastroenterologist or the uh, the urologist or or the physical therapist physical therapy is a huge part of the management mm-hmm. of pelvic pain yeah um, you know and there's and how you treat pelvic pain um, there's so many different things that obviously depending on what their problem is but one of the consequences of pelvic pain is is a, um, a self fulfilling or self propagating problem mm-hmm. um, so if you have an injury, in your arm, your leg, you bang yourself, you're, you, you broke something. What's the first thing your body does to um, to help? It isolates. It contracts that muscle. It pulls things in. It spasms your back, whatever it is, and you don't use it, right? That's our defense mechanism for protecting further injury in that area. The pelvis doesn't have that luxury. It doesn't move anything. So what does it do? It contracts and it pulls in tighter. So everything gets really tight. Sort of like you walking around and your shoulders are up around your ears all day long. So pelvic pain begets pelvic pain. And what happens is because of chronic muscle contraction, um, decreased blood flow and increased lactic acid, just like you're doing a thousand push-ups or crunches or whatever you want to do, um, you have lactic acid buildup. That hurts too, and it causes further tension and ongoing pain. So pelvic pain um, I always use our, uh, we have, we're blessed to have great pelvic floor physical therapists in our community. That, that's one of the part that's almost a mainstay for all of those patients, because even if we're addressing the cause, the secondary problem is the pelvic muscle uh, tension. 
Mm-hmm. And healthcare physical therapists are great at that. Yeah, it's so important. I couldn't agree more. I, I definitely try and make a huge effort to stress the importance of pelvic floor physical therapy on this platform just because I've done pelvic floor physical therapy and I've just seen how helpful it's been and I really you know I really like to spread the word on that as well so thank you so much for touching upon that and lastly I just want to ask if there are any resources that you have to recommend um I guess uh, there's um, there's lots of consumer-based um, uh, sources that I that I will suggest that patients find. Specifically, once they have a better idea of where what their um, where the problem originates from, you know, there's the Vulvodynia societies, and then there's the Lichen Sclerosis societies. There's the pelvic pain um, uh, groups, and there's blogs for all these great foundations and patient information. So um, nowadays, it's almost uh, it's um, it's so easy to get information. Um, uh, so I would start with a Google search with your specific symptom. You'd be amazed at what you'll find. Um, I think sometimes, um, unfortunately, patients rely so much on the physician to guide them. And like I mentioned before, so many of us don't have all the answers. And, and, um, and sometimes, and unfortunately, I find that medicine these days has become so dismissive. If they don't know what it is, they just say, well, she's got to live with it. So I advocate, I always suggest patient, be their own self-advocate, do your own research. If they can't find the answers from their own provider, um, you can start online looking at the major societies. Um, I would avoid, and not because there's not wonderful and amazing products available through Amazon, or through any of these, um, you know, these shopping networks. However, there's also a lot of junk out there, a lot of snake oils and a lot of just things that really don't have anything to do with what you need. So I would just be cautious before making any large investments like that Mm -hmm. and seek expert advice as best you can first before um, just um, putting band-aids on things. Thank you so, so much for sharing all of this. I really, really appreciate it. And I know that everyone listening is going to learn a lot and find this to be tremendously helpful. So thank you. You're very welcome. Um, one last um, yeah. plug, if I may. Yeah, I, um, I want to know also where everyone can contact you. So please share. Yeah, yeah. So we have a couple of ways of reaching out to us. Um, uh, I'm, I'm all for patient education. As you can tell, I like to, to explain things in a way that patients get. Um, and um, so on our website, it's constantly growing. We're, there's tons of great information that are easy to digest. Um, and we place references when available. Um, so our website at swanmd.com is a great first resource. We will eventually have a resource page on there. So for patients to go to other sites. Um, um, another way is we have a blog called, um, and it's through our uh, uh, Swan MD uh, Facebook page. We have a group called It's Not You, It's Your Hormones. And that group, we just started it recently. And what we hope that to be is a is a support group for patients that they can help themselves, but also where I can chime in, offer good advice, answer certain you know very specific questions that aren't being addressed, um, and give uh, and give guidance. And um, and I'm I'm looking forward to that growing and that and that network growing so that um, and I will include at some point other specialists to chime in as well to to help offer guidance for other patients. That's wonderful, and I will link all of those resources in the show notes so that everyone can just access them easily 
And thank you again for coming on today. Thank you, Hannah. This has been fun. I really appreciate the, the uh, time and I'm honored to, to come and uh, be able to speak. This podcast is for educational purposes only. It does not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing, or other healthcare professional services, including the giving of medical advice. During the episodes, no doctor-patient relationship is formed. The content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Listeners should seek the assistance of their healthcare provider for any concerns or questions they have.